Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nakhchang Rinpoche, Chapter 17, Part 2. I was glad that Rose and Valerie asked me no more, because they obviously had no interest in Vajrayana, or any other religion for that matter. I never liked answering questions about Vajrayana, unless people were genuinely interested. Throwaway information in casual conversation just never suited me where Vajrayana was concerned. After some moments of silence, art students were usually good at social silence, Valerie asked, Last night I got the faint impression that you weren't that keen on John Mayle and Alexis Corner, and I was wondering. Right, well, yes, it could only have been a faint impression because I don't like to be down on musicians other people enjoy and it's not even that I have anything to say against them. It's just that, well, they don't really represent blues as I know it can be. I suppose I'm something of a purist. I prefer Muddy Waters, you know, the main man, the lineage holder of Robert Johnson's legacy through Sunhouse. Yes, Valerie replied, but I thought you were grieving the death of the British blues boom. I am, but apart from a few tracks on a few albums, the British blues boom was more or less the British rock and roll boom. There was a lot of blues played early on in clubs and pubs, but when it came to albums, blues was just a little scarce. Don't get me wrong, I admire John Mayle and Alexis Corner and I like a fair selection of their material, but they played blues too fast and when you increase the tempo of blues beyond a certain point, you've more or less got rock and roll. And it's not even that I don't like rock and roll. It's just not blues, and blues is my passion. But, Rose cut in with a gleam in her eye, you told us that Savage Cabbage used to play the odd Beatles number and psychedelic numbers like Ichiku Park. Quite right. So did Cream. I never said that blues was the only music I liked or wanted to play. Savage Cabbage was fundamentally, and almost completely, a blues band. When we played blues, and that was 90% of the time, it was always slow. We played the long, cream-style improvisations with each number, and they admittedly owed much to jazz and J.S. Bach, but we never played rock and roll. We played blues with a few acid rock numbers for variety. A fair few of the black American blues people played the odd out-of-genre number. You wouldn't be a real musician if you were never tempted to use other material from time to time. Rose and Valerie sat silent for a moment, obviously thinking about what I'd said. And finally, Valerie responded. All right, yeah, 
I can see that in terms of rock and roll. I suppose that's why Cyril Davis broke away from Alexis Corner's band. I can see what you mean now, and really, it's the authentic Chicago blues we'd rather hear. I just never thought of there being such a difference. Well, maybe there isn't. Maybe it's just me, I volunteered. No, I think Vic's right, said Rose. There really is quite a difference when you really look at it. I mean, if you listen to Muddy Waters and most of the people from the British blues boom back to back, I suppose you'd have to come to that conclusion. I suppose it must be a little more obvious to you because you've played in a band and you'll have given the thing a lot of thought. There were some fantastic moments in it all, though. Led Zeppelin were a brilliant blues band in the beginning, very much like Cream in some ways. Then they moved into progressive rock, which I like, but I'd rather they'd stayed with blues. Edgar Broughton, too. They were once the Edgar Broughton blues band. Of course, when Cream split up, Jack Bruce moved back into jazz. I loved his Songs for a Taylor album because I love his bass playing and Pete Brown's lyrics. But I was sad not to hear him sing blues as he sang it with Cream. Ginger Baker always was a jazz musician, even in Cream, so he moved out into jazz rock fusion. Eric Clapton seems to have given up blues altogether. Maybe he'll come back to it again one day. I hope so. The Stones started out as a blues band too. The adjectival thing that irks me is, why did they have to move on? What was wrong with blues? Muddy Waters never moved on. Howling Wolf never moved on. Buddy Guy never moved on. Where's the loyalty to genre gone? Well, Vic, said Valerie, as if she was making the most obvious statement in the world to a simpleton. The people who stayed in genre, they're all black Americans, aren't they? It's their music, so it's their tradition to keep up. Yes, now I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but I thought we were all black too. In some way I thought we'd all escaped from being English or something. It's utterly crazy and I've never put it into words before, but there was this sense of having crossed the Rubicon. Jimi Hendrix and Buddy Guy grew long hair so it was happening the other way round, too. There was this sense that we were all in it together. I suppose you must think I'm utterly, utterly naive. Maybe, Valerie grinned, but as you said, if you're not passionate, you're dead. And maybe you need to be a little naive to be that passionate. I think, added Rose, that we'd both rather be naive too, if that's what it takes to be passionate. So, I sighed, where has all the flower gone? 
gone to make bread, I suppose. Oh, very droll, but very true, laughed Rose. What happened to the conviction that created the British blues boom? As you said, commercialism happened. There was more bread in progressive rock, Rose snorted. Yeah, I sighed. Commercialism happened all right. Commercialism happened and Jimi Hendrix died, added Valerie. That's what happened. Lunch break over, I was glad to discover that I could be wangled into the sculpture department to make my nut razor. A 12-string guitar had been borrowed from a very willing young lady, also a blues enthusiast, who Rose and Valerie had convinced that I was somebody vaguely famous. I was not entirely pleased by that. I knew they meant well, and so I said nothing to dismantle their promotional work. I'd found a piece of hard old mahogany in a skip from an old section of banister and in two hours I made a rather nice nut razor. It was far nicer than I'd imagined possible, so I was mightily pleased with my work. I had the length of chromium towel rail that I'd made into a slide for my gig in Carlisle, and so I was ready to roll in as the Hoochie Coochie Man. The gig went well. I enjoyed myself immensely even though I felt as if I was in a play where I was acting the part of one aspect of who I was. After the gig, we returned to Rose and Valerie's flat. We spent the evening together talking and playing blues albums. Rose and Valerie then surprised me at the end of the evening by springing spontaneous torridity upon me. They'd vanished for a few minutes and returned sans culotte. I then surprised myself by being unable to object to what they had in mind. Eventually Rose and Valerie went to sleep on either side of me. I lay awake wondering how it had all happened. Well, I knew how it had happened. They'd simply disrobed and made their intentions unavoidable. I should have realised that there was something in the air. Rose and Valerie had made a few sexually tinged rejoinders. I'd taken it as free-spirited badinage. After all, it had to be possible for men and women to engage in banter without it having to betoken more than jocularity. In any case, I was an extremely poor womaniser. I found the process of deliberate seduction entirely distasteful. If I liked a lady, I'd simply engage in conversation. And if she liked me, the conversation would become invigorating. There'd be more conversation and eventually the situation would become obvious. Romance simply happened of itself, by being natural. Maybe I was just naive. Maybe? No, there was no maybe about it. I was naive.
What follows verges on chaos, random, even as a stream of consciousness prose. It is a depiction of one night in terms of sleeping, dreaming and intermittently waking. Headings are supplied to indicate approximate mind states. Déjà vu, jamais vu, presque vu, quotidian nocturnal reality and quotidian diurnal reality. Déjà vu. As I lay there, I became aware of Rose and Valerie asleep on either side of me. How could I be experiencing déjà vu? Why was there the sense of the situation being customary, as if this was just how I lived on a day-to-day -day or night-to-night -night basis? I fell asleep. Jamais vu. I woke up. The room wasn't entirely dark, and in any case my eyes had grown accustomed to the dark. I'd always had good night vision. The situation was reasonably clear to me at first, but suddenly I was aware that I was not in a room. I was not in the bedroom where my amorous liaison with Rose and Valerie had so recently occurred. I looked around. I seemed to be seeing what looked like the sides of a tent. The impression didn't dissipate. I scanned my surroundings. For reasons entirely unknown, I was not disconcerted by what was obviously hallucinatory. I was awake and so it must have been some sort of hallucination. It didn't seem unnatural that I should be in a tent, but I felt no sense of that in itself being unnatural. That sense would have been more typical of the dream state, but I was definitely awake. The strange turn of events with Rose and Valerie was not in my mind. There was nothing at all in my mind but the sense of having suddenly woken from sleep. I went back to sleep. I don't know how long I'd been asleep, but I woke rather suddenly again. I became aware that I was looking up at the night sky. This again seemed customary because I seem to remember that I often slept outside at night. But who was the I in question? I did not form the question in words. It was more a vague sense of being experientially distant from the I who was in Exeter en route to the Himalayas via Farnham in Surrey. One was always en route to somewhere, but in each place that one was always a result of the surroundings and the circumstances. Presque vu. I thought that if I simply lay still for long enough, the words, ideas or information would simply come back to me from wherever they were before they slipped my mind.
I had no sense in that moment that I'd ever that I'd never slept outside at night. There was something in my consciousness that seemed at odds with another sense of memory, as if the memories of more than one person were attempting to cohabit in the same consciousness. I was having memories that were not my own, but which one was I? Or were there more than two streams of memory? Was it a menage à toi of memories? Was I somehow telepathically sharing memories with Rose and Valerie? Was that possible? Could people have adjacent dreams? I fell asleep.